Now, let me ask you a quick question, and maybe you've not put these things together before, but if you go to the, we're in Genesis right now, in Genesis 42, but if you were to turn to the very end of your Bible in Revelation 21, and in chapter, uh, in, in chapter 21, in verse 12, you will see a scene that John uh, describes where the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, comes down out of heaven from God uh, as, as it kind of, as heaven and earth meet. Uh, and what you find is that in verse 12, there's this description of the city uh, and the city gates. And there's 12 gates on the new Jerusalem. And above each gate is the name of one of the sons of Jacob. So you've got Reuben, Simeon, Levi, uh, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Dan, Asher, Naphtali, Gad, Joseph, maybe probably under Ephraim, and Benjamin. All of these names on the gates of heaven. Okay? Now, these are the same names that we find in Genesis 37 to 50 that make up Jacob's dysfunctional and ungodly family. And as we've worked our way through the story, we've discovered that these 12 brothers have no love for each other. They have no regard for their father, Jacob. They have criminal records of incest and immorality and deception and murder. They're ruthless, they're heartless, and they're shameless. And they're living as God's special people in the promised land, in Cana, but they're not living as God's people. They're diluting their identity as God's people because they're getting married to the pagan women around them and they're beginning to worship their false gods. And so how does this kind of family from hell end up on the gates of heaven? Have you ever thought about that? How does the family from hell end up on the gates of heaven? How, how did this scheming and shameful and sinful people ever get close to heaven? And what did it take for God to transform them from an ungodly, dysfunctional family into the founding fathers of God's special nation and into the representatives of the whole Old Testament on that heavenly city? Well, Hopefully, as we go through Genesis 42 to 45, we will see. Because what we're going to discover in these chapters is that we find God is using an international crisis of famine to bring about events that will bring this family to their knees in repentance. So that there can be restoration and renewal and transformation and ultimately salvation. And that's the purpose behind all of the details in the story. Now, as I said... it's four chapters, so we're not going to read it all. We're just going to, we're going to I'll try and provide a sweep of the story, and then we'll dip our toe in at various points to see what God is doing. So if you've got a Bible, keep it open at Genesis 42. <coughs> because as we heard last week, Joseph stood before Pharaoh and uh, interprets his dream about the seven fat cows and the seven skinny cows. And everything that Joseph foretold Pharaoh has become true seven bountiful years of harvest are followed now by uh, well they're two years probably into the seven years of famine and hardship and in his providence God has used this international crisis to as both the means to raise up Joseph to be Pharaoh's right-hand man in Egypt and also as the situation and the circumstance to bring his estranged family to Egypt so that there might be a meeting between the two of them. So we read in verses 1 to 7 of Genesis 42, When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, 
Why are you looking at one another? And he said, Behold, I've heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that, they, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Cana. And now Joseph was governor over, over the land, and he was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and they bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. And Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and he spoke roughly or harshly to them. So Jacob knows that there's famine. They, well, he's, they all experience famine in the land. He's heard that there's food in Egypt, but the brothers... They're on their backsides, lazing around, just waiting to perish. And so he sends them on a mission to buy food, but he doesn't trust them because he probably has some inkling that they already did away with Joseph and they've covered it up. And he doesn't want the same fate to happen to Benjamin. So he sends them to Egypt under the shadow of suspicion, really. Um, their past sins are beginning to catch up with them, it seems. And even the mention of Egypt would perhaps freak them out because oh my we sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites who were going to Egypt and 20 years after the treachery of throwing Joseph in a pit pretending that he was dead and then selling him to the Ishmaelites they finally bow down before him because God's word does not come uh, become void it always is fulfilled he's now the governor of Egypt and they bow before him. Now, we see that Joseph immediately recognizes his brothers, but they don't recognize him. And he remembers the dream, we're told. But he doesn't rub it in their faces. He sees that this is not just coincidence, but God's providence at work. Perhaps there's an opportunity here for reconciliation and restoration after 20 years of antagonism. And then we read on, uh, which we won't do, in verses uh, <coughs> 9 to 17. It's a bit like an interrogation in a movie scene as Joseph recognizes his brothers and he begins to accuse them of being spies, that they've come to the land to spy it out. And they say, no, 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 we're honest men. We're not spies. I mean, we're incestuous, we're immoral, we're murderers, but don't call us spies. We're honest men. And so Joseph ends up throwing them into prison, not to settle old scores or to indulge in a little bit of revenge, but it's a beginning of an elaborate series of tests that Joseph has, has uh, conjured up to determine what sort of men they have become. Have they changed? Can they be trusted? So Joseph is not just God's chess piece in a grand scheme of kind of providing his, his chosen family with food. He's put him in the right place at the right time so that he can display his transforming power in the lives of even the worst of sinners. Now, after three days in prison, this is verse 18, uh, Joseph gives them an opportunity to, okay, prove that you are honest men. Go back to Canaan and bring Benjamin to me. But one of you is going to stay hostage. And so Simeon draws the short straw and he 
uh, is uh, he remains in prison while the rest travel back to Egypt. And you see this in verse 21 and 22, that the brothers somehow discern that what is happening to them is some kind of, kind of cosmic karma, if there was such a thing, which there isn't, but that's what they think is going on. Uh, that their past sins have finally sort of caught up with them and they're now receiving their just deserts. So in verse 21 and 22, we read, uh, as they're on their journey home, they said to one another, in truth, we're guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, but we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. And then Reuben self-righteously kind of says, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you didn't listen? And now there comes a reckoning for his blood. The brothers begin in this moment. This is the first time where they're beginning to wrestle with their sin. That it's become clear to them. They've lived for 20 years covering it up and hiding it. But now there's a confession of sin. And it's the first step towards their repentance. Well, the brothers head back to Canaan from Egypt. Joseph has given them grain. He's provided them with abundant provision for their journey that they have made. And secretly, he has restored their money to them. So we read in verse 26 that when they stopped to feed their donkeys on the return journey, they opened their sacks to get their supplies out and they discover that the money that they should have paid for the food with is still in their possession. Imagine what it must be like as your heart kind of sinks as you dig into your bag and discover, oh, we're going to be in trouble here. Verse 28, read along with me. One of them said to his brothers, my money has been put back into my bag. It's in the mouth of my sack. And their hearts failed them and they turned trembling to one another and said, what is this that God has done to us? This is the first time that God is mentioned by the brothers from the beginning of verse th uh, chapter 37 till now. They don't speak of God up to this point. But here they recognize that what is happening to them is God's doing. This is the first time that he's mentioned and they now are in godly fear. God has used the famine to strip away their self-confidence and their self-sufficiency and their self-centeredness. God has used the harsh treatment, it seems, of Joseph and their imprisonment to open their eyes to their sin. And even now, as they consider, how did this money end up in our bags? They recognize something of God at work. Is this for good or is this for bad? They, I don't think, can tell, but they're suddenly aware in that moment that all of their lives, everything that they've done, has been under the watchful eye of God. But it's about to get worse before it gets better. They return home to their father, one brother down, flushed with cash. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? That's happened before. And now, if they go back to Egypt to rescue Simeon, they've got to go under the suspicion of being spies. So they're in a really difficult situation. They're caught between a rock and a hard place. What are they going to do? Well, in, verse, in chapter 43, we see them again sitting on their backsides, languishing around in Canaan until the situation gets so severe and so critical that they're forced to go back to Egypt. But Judah recognizes that they can't go without Ben. 
because their whole survival depends on their good relationship with this mysterious Egyptian lord who's taken a special interest in them. And if they go back without Benjamin, they are going to be doomed. But Judah steps forward. He takes leadership. He uh, begins to uh, lead this band of ungodly brothers. And he pledges in verse 9 of chapter 43 and says this, I will be a pledge for Benjamin's safety. For from my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame. Let me bear the sin, literally. For this. So Judah pledges his own fortune, his own wealth, and his own life to guarantee his younger brother's safety. This is the same Judah who schemed to get rid of Joseph. He was the one who wanted to sell him to make money. And now he says, everything I have, I pledge for Benjamin's safety. Judah is changing. We didn't study chapter 38, but if we went back, we'd read about his immorality with his sister, uh, daughter-in-law, sorry. He was all about himself. He was all about his own interests. He was all about selfishness. But here we see God is working in his heart, changing him, not completely, but in an ongoing way. <clears throat> and through Judah being changed, the whole family is changing. Look at what Jacob says as he reluctantly accepts and commits them to return to Egypt. Read with me verse 11 of chapter 43. Then their father Israel, and that's interesting because up to now he's been called Joseph, but the writer Moses wants us to see now he's beginning to shape, the nation is beginning to form as these band of brothers are changing. And he says this, if it must be so, if you've got to go back to Egypt with Benjamin, then do it. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags. Carry a present to this man, a little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight, a mistake. And take also your brother and go again to the man. And then here, Jacob is changed. May God Almighty grant you mercy. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. But as for me, if I am bereaved of children, I am bereaved. So they return with, Joseph, uh, with Benjamin in tow. But when they get to Egypt, we read, So the men took this present with them, verse 15, and they took double the money with them, and they went with Benjamin, and they arose, and they went down to Egypt, and they stood before Joseph. They weren't sure what to expect. Were they going to get thrown in prison for stealing the grain and not paying? That's what they deserved. But what we find is instead they are invited to dinner at Joseph's house. But they think it's a trap. So deceptive are they that in verse 18, the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said it's because of the money he knows, which was replaced in our sacks. And he's brought us here so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and to seize our donkey. So they think it's a trap. So they come clean. In verse 19, we read how they go to the steward of the house and they say, listen, we, when we were here last time, we took, we took food, but we didn't pay for it. It somehow ended up in our sack. We don't know, but we're coming clean. We've brought the money. We've got extra to pay. Please don't let there be any trouble. And the steward says in verse 23, 
peace to you. Do not be afraid. For your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. So the steward, the Egyptian pagan, speaks to these brothers and says, listen, you're guilty. But there's no charges, there's no condemnation, there's only peace. There's peace for you. There's nothing for you to face. Your debts have been paid in full. There's no charges for you to answer. There's no condemnation that's going to fall upon you. Instead, you can sit and eat at the table of this Egyptian Lord with a clear conscience, without any fear, with full assurance. What does that sound like? See, Joseph wasn't after their donkeys. He was after their hearts. He wanted to see what kind of men they had become. And so when he returns home and he sees the men and he sees Benjamin with them in verse 26, he's moved with compassion. He's moved with mercy. It's an answer to Jacob's prayer. May God have mercy upon you through this Egyptian. And and then we read, Joseph had compassion. Same word, mercy on them. So moved was he that he had to escape to compose himself. And then when he came back in, he ordered for dinner to be served. And this was the second part of the test as to discover what sort of men they had become. And so he arranges the brothers from oldest to youngest and he feeds them all. But Benjamin gets five times as much food as everybody else. Because there is if there's one thing that these brothers hate, it's when their youngest brother gets special treatment. When the youngest one amongst them gets showered with unusual blessing and honor and gifts that they don't receive, it provokes jealousy and envy in their hearts. And so this is a test. If anything is going to stir that jealousy to the surface, it will be Benjamin getting special treatment. But we read in verse 34, right at the end, they ate and drank and were merry with him. It seems that the old bitter sibling rivalries and the uh, jealousy and the hostility is gone and there's some kind of new unity and harmony that allows them to party late into the night. These brothers who had previously failed the character tests that had been before them have changed. God has applied the rod of discipline through the circumstances that they faced in the famine and through the actions of this mysterious Egyptian stranger to change in to change them and change their hearts. He's beginning to shape them and refine them. Then in chapter 44, we discover that Joseph puts them to the final test. He fills their sacks with grain. He puts back their money secretly again, but this time he asks for one of his servants to plant a silver cup into Benjamin's bag. And then the brothers, probably with heavy hangovers and hazy memories of the night before, saddle their donkeys and they set off. But it's not far into the journey before the sort of the flashing blue lights of the Egyptian police turn up, pull them onto the hard shoulder and say, hang on a minute. We think there's been a crime that's been committed. Verse six, if you will, of chapter 44. When the steward overtook them, he spoke these words to them, saying to them, why, oh, 
why does my Lord uh, speak such words as these? So they say, what? Why, have you, why are you accusing us of stealing? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. We found the money in the mouth of our sacks that we brought to you from the land of Canaan. We didn't steal the silver or gold from our Lord's house. And if we did, whichever of us is guilty, well, may we die. And we also will be our Lord's servants. So they're accused of stealing, but they protest their innocence to the point of saying, listen, let the death penalty land on whoever is guilty and we'll all be your slaves. And then as he, the steward goes through man after man in each bag, he discovers empty bags, just full of grain, just full of the money. And the relief must have been pouring over them as they brother by brother discover, okay, okay, we're clear. Okay, we're in the clear. Until verse 12 we read, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack their hearts must have sunk again and we find that they are beside themselves with grief so they tore their clothes and every man loaded his donkey and they returned to Egypt they get back in front of Joseph who questions them as to what they have done and Judah draws the conclusion in verse 16 that actually yeah we are not honest men his confession in verse 16 is one that's full of remorse it's full of repentance we are guilty he says and now for the climax joseph has wangled this kind of elaborate and yet beautiful situation where these 11 brothers or 10 brothers rather are now faced with a similar situation a parallel situation to what they faced 20 years before a favored son benjamin this time is going to pay the penalty for his crime he's going to be put into an egyptian prison and they may go home back to their father one son down flushed with cash what are they going to do? Now, we know from chapter 37, when presented with this before, they, there was no question they sold Joseph in a heartbeat. But here we find Judah stepping up again as the leader of the group with a humble and heartfelt speech. He intercedes for Benjamin and offers himself as a sacrifice. If we had time, we'd read from verse 18 all the way through to verse 34 one of the longest speeches in all of genesis as judah pleads humbly offering himself to pay the penalty <clears throat> for a crime he did not commit to save benjamin from death this is the first time in the whole bible that we find someone willing to lay down their life for someone else and it's judah who is only reflecting and prefiguring what his greatest descendant, the lion of the tribe of Judah, will do for us in the future. And under God's providence, Joseph has provided an opportunity for them to show the powerful transformation of God in their hearts. And the brothers make a different deal. They will not be self-centered and selfish and self-serving any longer. They under the leadership of Judah, will be self-sacrificing. They're changed men. God has been at work, and Joseph, at the beginning of verse chapter 45, is 
broken. And he makes a speech where he reveals himself to them. He sends all of his Egyptian servants out of the room and he says, I am your brother, Joseph. And then he begins in verse 4, if you'll read along with me. Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And so the brothers drew near and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. But do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For famine has been in the land these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. But God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep you alive for many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord over all of his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. So hurry up and go to my father and say, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and do not tarry. Joseph doesn't try and deny the guilt of his brothers. He doesn't try and excuse them from their responsibility, but he just reminds them with great compassion, with great mercy, with great forgiveness, that God has been at work all the time. Through the ups, through the downs, through the adversity, through the prosperity, through all of the sin and the sorrow, God has been at work to establish his good purposes. Four times, verse 5, verse 7, verse 8, verse 9, God is at work through 20 years of favoritism through 20 years of envy and jealousy and treachery and betrayal and deceit and selfishness and slavery and false accusations and prison and famine God has been at work protecting and preserving this family so that he might protect and preserve his promises and through it all he's been changing these men into men who now can be on the doorposts and the gateposts of heaven because they have come to realize that God is their God and they are his people. And the delivery from famine is just one of a number of rescues where God preserves his special people and his promises so that the lion of the tribe of Judah may come one day and save God's people not just from famine but from sin and hell and death. So there's three things you could take away from this chunk of the story. God is at work. For 20 years, Joseph couldn't see what God was doing and how his suffering was going to work out, but it did. And maybe it's the same for us. Maybe we go through situations and circumstances where it's difficult for us to see how God is going to use this. Oh my goodness, what is he doing here? And how is this going to work out? And yet this story reminds us that God is always working for the good of his people. Although the ways that he uses may not always be simple or transparent. But Joseph and the story of Genesis reminds us that when we cannot trace his hand, we can trust his heart. Paul says it more clearly in Romans 8, 28. For those... God loves he's working all things together for their good the second takeaway is this people can change God is at work changing people by the grace of God even the worst of sinners 
incest, immorality, murderers are changed and forgiven. God can change the hardest of hearts and the cruelest of people. So that should give us hope for ourselves, shouldn't it? I mean, we don't, I don't, I'm not into incest or, by the grace of God, immorality or murder. My sins don't fall into those categories, but this gives me confidence he can change us. No matter what we've done, no matter what we do, he can change us. He can also change those closest to us, our family and our friends who maybe at the moment are so hard-hearted and antagonistic towards Christianity. God is at work. He can and does change people. And thirdly and finally, we find that people can be forgiven. Many times, sir, this section of the story of Joseph is taught it's a story about how Christians, we should be forgiving like Joseph forgives. That we should forgive those who sin against us. And certainly that's true, isn't it? In the New Testament, we're told to forgive those who sin against us. But the point of the story here is not to put ourselves in Joseph's category and character. We're far more aligned with the brothers than perhaps we would like. Think about your own life for a second. We we use other people for our own advantage. We ask them to do things for us to further our own ends. Perhaps we're jealous or envious of people, what they have that we don't have, what we wish they didn't have because we haven't got it. Perhaps even murderous temptations, which Jesus says is just anger against our brothers and sisters in the Sermon on the Mount. They fly through our head and we sin against one another in word and deed and thought and attitude when someone wrongs us and crosses us, we snap. Whether it be driving in a car or with the kids or something at work, it doesn't take much to provoke us. Or we backbite and we spread malicious stories about others because we're jealous about what they have or what they can do. Our relationships end up broken. We sin against one another. We judge one another. We treat one another harshly. We treat them with contempt. Or maybe we're like the brothers and our souls are just kind of tortured by past sins that just cast shadows over our lives. They never seem to disappear from our minds. And we sit and we're aware we need someone to step forward for us like Judah. And what's the answer? Thanks be to God, we do have someone. Jesus, who died in our place to save us from our sins, who enacted a costly plan of redemption that would satisfy both the claims of justice because of our sin and show his mercy and grace to the undeserving. God has sent his son to rescue us by paying the debt we could not pay and declaring us not guilty with no condemnation, washing us whiter than snow, where once our sins were like scarlet, through him bearing the full weight of our guilt and our sin upon his shoulders at the cross. And in exchange, we receive freedom and mercy and life. The biggest takeaway from the story of Joseph is this. Though our sins be many, his mercy is more. Praise the Lord, huh? Let's pray and let's sing.